Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week is, as always, Cleveland attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson, the man to see for all your commercial litigation needs. Before we get started with the podcast today, I wanted to thank all of you who've become regular listeners. If you've been enjoying the politics, guys, and you're listening through iTunes, and most of you are, it seems, I'm hoping you can take a minute to rate the podcast on iTunes and write a review, even if it's a short one. Ratings and reviews are really important in increasing podcast visibility, so by leaving a review, you definitely be helping us out. A few of you may be listening to us through Stitcher or another podcast subscription service. Ratings and reviews help there, too, so if you want to lend a hand by reviewing the show, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Well, obviously, the big story this week was the Supreme Court's 5-4 to four ruling that found that there is a constitutional right to same-sex marriage in Oberfell versus Hodges. And, of course, that uh, the, the plaintiff for that is actually someone from my neck of the woods right here in Cincinnati. Uh, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the decision, as everyone kind of expected he would, said that while the Constitution contemplates that democracy is the appropriate process for change, Individuals who are harmed need not await legislative action before asserting a fundamental right, something that the dissenters, and that would be Justices Roberts, Scalia, Alito, and who am I missing here? Thomas, Thomas, the quietest (laughs) justice, would definitely disagree with. So uh, what do you think about this, Jay? Uh, Gay marriage, fundamental right protected by the Constitution. Well, first of all, if you if you live uh, know the um, the plaintiff, I just want to point out I know uh, the, uh, Rick Hodges, the defendant. Um, well, so, isn't that a small world kind of thing? Small world, exactly. Um, uh, you know, it, it's 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 Anthony Ken- uh, Kennedy's country. We just live in it. Yeah, it seems that way sometimes. Uh, and, and I and I guess that's what what troubles me as as uh, regular listeners, and even I suppose the irregular listeners of this this show uh, probably know. Um, you know, when it comes to gay marriage, I am a conservative who is, uh, I don't know if supportive is the right word, but I, uh, I'm, I'm okay with it. Tolerate. I, I approve of it. Uh, I'd say more than tolerate. Uh, uh, no, I, I think, uh, I think, uh, people ought to have the right, right to marry. Same sex couples ought to have the right to marry. So you take more of a libertarian stance on this personally. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, what, what troubles me and, and troubles me to a, a great extent. And this is, I think, what the dissenters said. And, and I think particularly if you look at the um, uh, Alito, uh, what, what he wrote, um, it, it's, it's, it's a matter of how do we get there? Uh, and do we get a maybe a, a desired, a happy result? Um, but in doing so, do we do damage to our, our, our system? Um, and, and I know that's, that's a tough thing to sell, uh, these kind of days. And, you know, there's sort of all the triumphalism, uh, going on out there. Um, but it's, it's sort of the, you know, and, and the, the piece you just read from Kennedy sort of sums that up exactly, um, that, uh, there's a legislative process and this is the way it ought to work. Eh, unless I think otherwise. Um, and that's, that's what, what really bugs me. Well, yeah. And I think the, unless I think otherwise involves that, 
determination of what exactly we mean by a fundamental right. And yeah. if someone's fundamental rights are being violated, then you wouldn't wait for the legislative process to correct that because that's, you know, that's something that can be addressed through the, through the legal system, through the judiciary. Right. But I think, I think the big problem, and this is, this is, you know, really where the county piece goes, goes astray, the, the county opinion. So much of it, it's, it's the, the florid language. It's about, it's about love being fundamental and, and all this, this emotional, I mean, I'll say and, clap clap. And let's get this out of the, out of the way right now. I think both the left and the right can agree that the Justice Kennedy is uh, oftentimes uh, a pompous windbag. Yeah. Oh, yes, please. Uh, the the uh, the sort of I don't know almost self congratulatory oh god yeah uh, you know way of, of writing this and uh, how he writes nice awful it, opinions I think it, and, and you know I read this as something else uh, from I think it was Vox or or Slate and I I always sort of confuse the two but um, about easy to do about how upon a hearing or, or reading the opinion you know brought tears to people's eyes. That makes uh, me roll my eyes, but okay. And, and to me, it's if there if there's any like test of this is a bad court decision, it's that it's you know it's an emotionally you know it yeah. brings tears to your eyes. And and that's that, not that tends to me that it, to say that it's that is probably long on uh, emotion and uh, button pushing and, and short on legal reasoning. And that's not to say that it's not understandable to have an emotional reaction. I I saw one of the many post when my Facebook exploded after the decision, I saw, you know, a map of the United States all colored in one color. It said, yes. you know, here's where Americans can now legally, you know, same sex couples can marry. And, and I got to say, I got, I got a little choked up, but I think the point, the point I think that you're making here is, and, and that I agree with is, is there a place for that in a legal decision? I think there's a, I feel that maybe not so much, you know, and I actually, right. I wanted to, I wanted to, talk about that a little bit. And since you brought it up in a way, I want to address that now. We might as well. You know, I'm kind of troubled by the fact that more and more, it seems like Supreme Court opinions, both the opinions and the dissents sound more and more like something you'd read on the Huffington Post or Red State than they do uh, a legal opinion, which is not to say there's not a place for strong legal writing. But when it gets right. that emotive, whether it's positive or negative, I think it really takes something away from the legitimacy of the court. And and I blame the justices for that, both on the left and the right. Um, you know, I, I think there's something to that. Um, and, I, and I'm wondering, this isn't something I've really given any study to, but uh, if these these more emotional opinions arise in, in cases like this where – there is quite frankly no real precedent to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what, uh, you know, again, troubles me. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of conservatives um, out there who are, you know, shouting, this is the end of the world. It's, it's the uh, end of democracy and so forth. Um, there's some truth to that, um, but, but I, I would say, you know, hasn't it always been thus? I mean, um, you know, look, this isn't the first time the Supreme Court has has issued an opinion that is, you know, basically a policy statement rather than than a legally reasoned uh, uh, decision. And, well, and I, I, think I would disagree with you on that, but okay. Things, you, you necessarily uh, invite more of just that, you know, emotional. It's like you're making a floor speech in the legislature as opposed to uh, deciding a case or controversy. Yeah, see, to me, and I would I, – I think I can agree with you in general on that, but I think in the end, my fundamental take on 
the decision, uh, both the both the dissenters and the majority opinion, is that the majority believes that the understanding of what constitutes a fundamental right, this understanding changes over time, and that it's the job of the judiciary to consider that changing understanding when they make decisions. Whereas the minority, I think they agree that the understanding of what constitutes a fundamental right might change over time, but they feel that the judiciary is bound by, I guess you could say, the understanding of what that was at the time the provision of the law or the provision of the Constitution, I guess, was enacted. Um, Well, I I would put a little bit of a gloss on that, and I would say, look, a fundamental right is is almost by definition uh, unchanging. Uh, it is sort of their pre-existing. Now, now it may be that it was uh, ignored or overlooked or something like that, and that's why in a lot of cases, uh, when you go to this substantive due process analysis, and and which I you know most conservative jurists would not be fans of, uh, because it 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 sort of reeks of of what they call in the the legal circles Lochnerization. We can talk about that in a second. Um, and poor poor Joseph Lochner is probably turning in his grave right now. Um, right, but uh, uh, but it's it's the idea that yeah there are there are rights that are so inherent to the uh, concept of ordered liberty is is one phrase that the court has used to describe fundamental rights um, that they're just part of it and a lot of they they look to sort of natural law or to the you know long term uh, law of 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 uh, England and and so for they you know harkens back to things that are are beyond our constitution. Uh, predate our constitution. And, and to some extent, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but you, you've got to do some actual real intellectual heavy lifting uh, to get to get there. Uh, and I, I don't I don't think that, that Kennedy did that. Um, and, and just just to be and, clear- and the other thing is, I mean, this is this is really getting the legal weeds, too. But and I think there, there could have been a, a better equal protection argument made as opposed to fundamental substantive due process, right? But, yeah. but the Kennedy thing is all just sort of a muddle, and that's that's what the problem is. It's all just... Um, yeah, and if we can kind of pull back on that, I think that's I think that's an important point, is that the majority based their opinion largely on this idea of due process, what you call substantive due process, and that's something that drives a lot of conservatives and certainly uh, Justice Scalia kind of crazy, this, uh, this idea of creating new rights, essentially, whereas I would argue... Those were essentially substantive process sort of began in the uh, Griswold case, and I guess there was some before that, Um, and I'm forgetting the name of the case now, but what sort of grew into Roe versus Wade, Um, right, where you're not talking about equal protection, you're talking about just a a general sense of fairness that this ought to be the way it ought to be. Yeah, and that drives me crazy, too, because I would argue, I would have come to the same conclusion as the majority did, but I would have based it on equal protection. And for those those of the listeners who aren't clear on that, what I mean is the 14th Amendment says that uh, uh, you can't be deprived, states can't deprive uh, citizens of equal protection of the laws. And to me, this is a pretty, you can make a pretty strong equal protection case, but the majority chose not to do that and base it on this uh, substantive due process idea. Yeah, sort of. And even then, sort of a, a poorly reasoned, I mean, it, oh, don't, don't get me started. Um, and the reason this is important, just to be clear, is that if, if we're talking about a fundamental right, what the Supreme Court has said in a number of precedents is if the state does something that seems to violate a fundamental right, then they review that under what they call strict scrutiny. 
which means right. that the law in question that the state's trying to pass has to be what they call narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest, which is kind of a high bar. And Whereas, almost, I would say in, in nine out of 10 cases, it is it is an unreachable bar. Yeah. And say normally the standard is what's called rational basis scrutiny, which means that it just kind of has to pass the basic sniff test, you know, has to seem to make some kind of sense, basically. Right. And I think that's that's the other reason why why the um, uh, substance due process. And, I, and really, I didn't know we were going to end up going here doing this deep in the legal weeds. But um doesn't it doesn't make sense because as the Sixth Circuit uh, decision, which was what was essentially uh, overturned here, um, discussed, you know, if you're looking at this in any sort of rational basis uh, degree, um, well, one rational basis is, well, no one's recognized uh, uh, same sex marriage for, you know, 5,000 so or so years that we've had civilization. Um you know, so there's there's sort of a rational basis in that, that you know, look, this is not something that uh, anyone has ever, uh, 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 you know, come right. on. And it's and so the argument essentially the the argument essentially is if if this is if this is a fundamental right here we're talking about, or if it's not a fundamental right, then we apply the rational basis test, which is essentially as long as what the state is asserting is not patently ridiculous. Right. Basically, then it's going to be OK. And the state's argument is that there is an interest in promoting uh, uh, heterosexual marriage uh, and creating families and family stability and so forth. Yeah. And I and think again, it's an can, awful you, you argument, can, you, but it's not. You can degree, right. Exactly. But I think it's I think it's an argument that passes a rational basis. Yeah. Test. Yeah. Which is an incredibly low bar. Yeah. Exactly. So. So, yeah. Um, anyway, so what what else? Uh, what else occurred to you about the decision that you thought was uh, notable? Well, you know, I, I guess the the thing that that uh, and again, I, I you know, we we talked before the, the the podcast and about sort of cognitive dissonance, and and I'm I'm in the same place uh, where look, I'm I'm happy that the result was reached. Um, I'm terribly upset about the way the result was reached. Um, the idea that the, the, the fact that there has been so much progress so quickly uh, on the acceptance of, of uh, homosexuality and on um, uh, same-sex marriage, you know, within the last decade, uh, to me, that's all the more reason of why does the court need to to jump into this uh, when it is working its way through uh, legislatures and uh, state yeah. referenda? Yeah. Well, I think yes and no. I would think because while Thirty-seven states before this ruling allowed same-sex marriage. Only eleven of them did that through uh, the democratic processes. The rest were through court rulings and so forth. So, I I appreciate that argument, and I think other things being equal, it absolutely is better to do things through that process. But when it could be decades before people get what I what I believe is a fundamental right, and Justice Scalia would disagree with me. I think the question here is the fundamental right to marriage. He would say it's the fundamental right to gay marriage or same-sex right. marriage, and I think that's a that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what we're talking about here. Oh, I and I, no, I don't think it's a misunderstanding. I think that's I think that's sort of and you know someone had mentioned um, I think it might have been you a Facebook post uh, loving versus Virginia, right? And and that's something to the extent that. Um, uh, the majority relied upon precedent. Uh, that's that's something a case they cited, and that was the case um, which, about which, just for, so people know, yeah, the, the, which was about uh, interracial marriage. Yes, 
Um, and I think there's there's a lot of differences between uh, loving and and this, and and the big one is historically. And if you're going for, from that natural law substantive due process thing, yes, it, 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 humankind has always accepted the man woman marriage. And in fact, uh, if you looked to the law of a lot of states, uh, historic English law, you know there was no prohibition on interracial marriage. That prohibition arose out of uh, Jim Crow laws in, in the South and was sort of an artificial, um, you know, attack mm-hmm. uh, essentially to, to, uh, to you discriminate. I mean, and that's, that's what it was. Whereas um, same-sex marriage, it's not a matter of, of there was a conscious effort to discriminate because nobody really knew that this was even a thing until 15, 20 years ago. Now – uh, I think you could clearly argue that the the Ohio constitutional amendment uh, did discriminate um, when it when it uh, uh, outlawed uh, uh, same, uh, home, I think it was same sex marriage or any approximation thereof mm-hmm. uh, in Ohio. Um, but but there again, I mean, I think that's the better equal protection tra- challenge than the, the substantive right. process challenge. Right. Um, but so that's why I think there's the distinction between between loving and um, uh, this. And if the idea was, oh, we've always accepted this, and this is fundamental. Um, again, I, I just don't see the evidence for it, uh, or I don't think that's been well supported. It it just strikes me yeah. once again. It's sad when we talk about this all the time of the uh, you know constitutional means a a policy that i approve of and unconstitutional means one that i don't yeah, you know, yeah so. exactly and and i i guess my take on this is some people talk about how the court creates rights out of thin air uh, i would argue that it's more that the court uh discovers rights and meaning discovering that those fundamental rights were all were always there so they're not right. creating well, that's, anything and, and out i would of thin say air. that's the way they ought to do it to the extent they do it at all yeah and I think that now, but there's one thing I think that uh, surprised me uh, in reading so much about this decision. Uh, one of the article, many articles I read about this, what came from my buddy Ezra Klein from Vox, and Ezra Klein actually agreed, not more than agreed, he actually, I, I, you could say, promoted a view of Justice Scalia, which stunned me. Right. Uh, the article was called "What Scalia's Same-Sex Marriage Dissent Gets Right About the Supreme Court," and of course, I saw that. That was total clickbait for me. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and his argument, well, Scalia's argument, essentially was, "I don't really care so much about gay marriage, but what I care about is the court, this unrepresentative body, making these determinations that should be made through the legislative process." And his concern was that the the court, you know, maybe you like this decision, but next time it could be a court that rules on a decision that you don't like. And so it's yes. about judicial overreach. And yes. the thing that uh, the thing that uh, Klein pointed out is he said uh, most of the justices are guilty of that. In fact, he argued that Justice Scalia was guilty of that as well, not in this case, but in the uh, in the previous case, which we'll get to in a minute, the Obamacare case, essentially not being able to resist the impulse to interpret things in such a way to lead to his preferred conclusion, which would be, uh, as, as, as Klein would probably put it, the destruction of uh, President Obama's main domestic policy achievement. Right. And I think there is something to be said for that argument, and anyone should be concerned about nine unrepresentative, unelected people in for life 
making these kind of big decisions. And I think that that uh, hits the nail on the, the head as far as the what is the you know traditional classical conservative view of, of what the judiciary ought to do uh, is that uh, decide cases and controversies and uh, stay the hell out of, of policymaking. Um, um, so, so what, what do you think? Let's, let's talk about the Obamacare, which yeah. is in, in some way, in some ways, I mean, if, if it hadn't been for the, uh, same sex marriage decision would have been a big deal. Definitely. Uh, I, I would say in a lot of ways from a, a purely legal standpoint, it's less of a big deal because while it's important from a policy standpoint that it, it preserves, uh, Obamacare, the actual legal issues, it came down to statutory interpretation of uh, one part of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, there's, there's no broader constitutional you know, discussion or new fundamental rights or, or that, any kind of that kind of thing right. going on. Yeah, I think uh, just to, to be clear, what the, what the challengers were arguing was that uh, there was a clause in the Affordable Care Act that said that tax benefits that people get who sign up for exchanges – were el- people were eligible when they enrolled in an exchange established by a state. That was yes. the exact language. And they yes. said, well, okay, if that's the case, that means that everyone who's enrolled in an exchange, but a federal exchange, therefore is not eligible for those benefits. And if they're not eligible for those benefits, all of a sudden insurance becomes unaffordable for them. They're yes. allowed to drop out of insurance because of what's called a hardship exemption. And what happens to the insurance markets then is only the sickest people stay in and the insurance markets essentially self-destruct over the a period of time. Death spiral. Death spiral. Is the term. term, yeah, yes. Exactly. And so that, that was the argument. And what the, court, what the court said in this decision, and this was a 6-3 decision where Justice Roberts uh, wrote the decision and he was joined by Kennedy, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and – Kagan yep. said essentially that, yes, that does say exactly what it says. But if you take a look at the context of if you read the entire thing, and that's quite a job given right. how but big it no is. no one's really yes. done. Come on. But if you read the – if you take a look at it in context, it's pretty clear that what happened here is they screwed up this passage and that the entire legislation makes no sense. It reaches essentially an absurd conclusion if we take this for what it actually, what the words actually say. And, and unless one were to go with the, the Gruber argument, which he went around preaching all along, is that the, the point of that was to create uh, an enticement or encourage states to create their own exchanges. I mean, that's Jonathan Gruber, one guy who made a couple right. of comments and that the, right. that the right totally freaked out about. And, and understandably so. They were, looking for, they were looking for anything that they could do to kill Obamacare. God, I mean, the House, hell, the House well, voted no, no, against no. it 50 let's, some let's, times. Let's, let's call it like it is, though. I mean, what, what happened in this case was uh, the language, by everyone's agreement, would seem not to uh, yes. allow – Subsidies and Justice and, Roberts and there said is, that, there is yeah. a there is a long held principle uh, in the law that expressio unios uh, ex, exclusio Ooh, alterius Latin very good exactly exactly it's also that's a, how a you know it's long held because it's in Latin exactly exactly um, but no it, it means expression of one is is to be read as the exclusion of the other uh, that that is just standard stuff that if you say by the state that means by the state and. You know, acts, uh, congressional acts are drafted by 
lots of very, very smart people. Uh, they're, you know, lobbyists from, you know, top law firms. They are the best and the brightest from our, our best law schools. Uh, there are uh, representatives uh, who are elected, uh, many who have, uh, uh, you know, legal educations. And there's professional staff people uh, in in the uh, in the House and Senate that, that work on drafting these things. And, but, and no, so that's true. You, you got to say, look, it says what it says. And this is like, look, we're, well, we're saying Congress screwed up. So the court's going to give them an assist on But this. no, and, but I think, but a lot of times what happens, and you know this, of course, is that even with all those really good people writing that, things get in that, or mistakes get in, drafting errors and so forth. That happens all the time. And most of the time in the normal course of business, what happens is they can submit technical changes after right. the fact, and no one has a problem with it. But this, of course, after the fact, was gone over with a fine-tooth comb, which is understandable. And this was, I mean, this, what the majority concluded was this was a drafting error, essentially. Right. And the minority, especially Justice, Justice Scalia, practically had a stroke about this. And it led to, well, in one of the, again, this is Facebook exploded a little bit yes. less the day before. Uh, somebody who I follow suggested that uh, Justice Scalia was a lot like George Costanza uh, in this. And it was uh, – for, for Scalia's who, had a George Costanza kind of week. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, a bad week for Justice Scalia. But it was really kind of, a, I think, a good analogy here. And this is uh, the uh, the famous – what I think is the famous, if you're a certain age, the famous moop scene where George Costanza is playing Trivial Pursuit with the bubble boy. Uh, yes. kid in a bubble and so forth. And it's probably better just to kind of play the audio as opposed Roll to it. try to explain it. So let me do that. Okay. History. This is for the game. How you doing over there? Not too good. <laughs> All right, bubble boy. Let's just play. Who invaded Spain in the 8th century? That's a joke. The Moors. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. It's the moops. The correct answer is the moops. Moops. Let me see that. That's not moops, you jerk. It's moors. It's a misprint. I'm sorry. The card says moops. It doesn't matter. It's moors. There's no moops. It's moops. Moors. And I think God, that God bless you. Yeah, God bless Scalia. Um, no, look, I, I think that's that's a funny comparison. And and yes, if the if the um, let the uh, act had actually said it's it's the uh, uh, Stutz or something like that, you know, and there was a, a misprint of that type, uh, it would be spot on. Um, but when you're talking about uh, what the court did, which was insert a couple of words into the statute in order to save it. Uh, I think that's that's different as problem. Yeah, I don't think they inserted words. I think they just read. I think they just read the context of the legislation. They they inserted. They essentially inserted the words state uh, state after state. They inserted the words or federal, and that makes a big difference. And uh, you know, to me, it looks. I think this was a Roberts reached out because uh, this was a big deal. Would they have done this on some other? piece of legislation where they have done this in the interpretation of some uh, obscure federal uh, rule on, uh, you know, I don't know who knows what, but, you know, timber rights or, or you know, something like that. 
No, but this was a big deal. Uh, I think Roberts recognized uh, if the subsidies were eliminated, there would be substantial uh, confusion, harm, uh, people thrown off of uh, things. There would it would be a mess. Uh, so he, he took he he did this and they they tweaked it and gave the uh, the legislature the assist. See, I think Justice Roberts was actually I have actually come out of this with uh, more respect for him than than I went into it earlier in the week. I think that in both of these cases, what impresses me about Justice Roberts, even though I don't agree with his uh, his ruling or his uh, process in the gay marriage case, is that in both cases he exercised, I think, admirable judicial restraint. In both cases, he deferred to the will of the legislature as best he understood it. And I, that's not something you can say, I don't think, about any of the other justices here in, in um, looking at both cases. You know, I, and I would say I would agree with you as to Roberts on the last Obamacare case. Uh, giving uh, deference to the, the legislature on this, I, I think he gave too much deference. Uh, and and again, just from principles of statutory construction, as uh, Scalia would tell you, and and uh, the other senators would tell you, um, it's it's one thing to uh, give the legislature the benefit of the doubt and to presume the constitutionality of a statute. Uh, it's another to uh, take the you know the language as written and interpret it. You know, add essentially add words in. To me, to me, you know, again, the 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 primary goal of statutory interpretation, you have to look at the words. If there's something unclear about the words, well, then you can maybe get into legislative history. But it's a it's a secondary uh, thing. Because and, and the reason for that is because we have written laws and they're written down for for an important reason. And if it's a matter of uh, well, it's close enough, and that's what they meant. Uh, you do a, a disservice to uh, democracy. Democracy doesn't work as well I, I, uh, because people aren't because legislators aren't held as accountable to what they they actually produce. I guess what, what one thing that troubles me is that you know, even if I grant that point, back in 2012, in the in the previous Obamacare case. Justice Scalia himself said that without these subsidies, the exchanges wouldn't operate as Congress intended. And right. he somehow forgot all about his decision. Now, Justice Roberts didn't. <laughs> Justice Roberts uh, Justice Roberts actually cited Scalia in support of his argument there. And Scalia, of course, uh, like I said, conveniently forgot about that. Yeah. And see, that, that, that exactly is why Ezra Klein, I think, liked that article or liked that, you know, that, that point that Scalia made in the gay marriage case is that this uh, you know, judicial overreach is really easy to do. And Justice Scalia, I think, did it here. And I think he has been... Very inconsistent. For instance, in this case, he's saying that, well, the law says exactly what it says it does. But yet in the gay marriage case, he wants to read all kinds of stuff into what the Equal Protection Clause means. Say, well, let's look at what the laws were back then and other things and so forth. So I think he's picking and choosing, you know, little bits to kind of get to his preferred ideological outcome. And I don't think Justice Roberts is doing that. And for that, even though I don't agree with him uh, some of the time, I certainly can respect him a lot more than Justice Scalia, who I enjoy. God knows I love <laughs> reading him in dissent. Well, first off, because I'm probably going to disagree with him on policy, but also because he's funny as hell. But, you know, I think that maybe actually does some real damage to, to the process. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to argue. I, I I could argue with you on on uh, some sort of distinctions between the two cases and where Scalia is on that. But I, I think it would uh, we would really be getting into the legal weeds right. and so forth then. But I'd I'd point out 
back in 1987, um, I think it was 87, 87, 88, uh, Robert Bork wrote a book called The Tempting of America. I remember well, seven on my bookshelf, yeah. Yeah, and, and Bork made the the point that I think you've just made today, and I would agree today with today, and that is when you allow the judiciary to make policy, there is there is the temptation and it's not the temptation to do something bad. They're, you know, sort of big, uh, and I, I don't want to use the word dictatorship because that's not what I'm talking about. Oligarchy is sort of the platonic guardians. When you, when you get this, uh, uh, these, these situations never arise out of an intent to do evil or do wrong. The temptation sure. is to use power to do something good. But as you point out, and this is, again, sort of classic uh, conservative uh, Burkean, Lockean uh, uh, philosophy, is that you can't trust anybody to do to do good. And, That's right. Uh, Lord Acton also, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and it's – so I, I, I look back to, to Justice uh, – I almost said Justice Bork. Um, what, what a world we would, we would be in if – Very if different, yeah. The case, uh-huh. right? Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, but Judge Bork's uh, – Discussion and I, and I really think people ought to consider this as they're celebrating the uh, same-sex marriage decision. Uh, consider what if Ezra Klein and and uh, Robert Bork are saying the same thing. Uh, you know there might be something to it. Yeah, definitely. And, and there is there is a sense of we lose a little bit of democracy. And I'm not. It's not the end of the world. It's not. Uh, you know the end of America, uh, as, as some conservatives would say. But but it's a little bit of a chipping away, and there's the the problem of of what's next, and you might not like the next decision as much. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, hey, you, you know, know I'd also, and again, I'm gonna. This is completely geek out because not only you know what I reference Robert Pork, but also uh, Tolkien. Um, you know, if you've read the Lord of the Rings or, or seen the, the movies, I mean, that's that's what this is all about. That you know, when you can have something that would would give you absolute power, and there's the sense that, yeah, I'd do something really good with it. Um, mm-hmm. I I wouldn't be corrupted, uh, but the problem is, you know, people are fallible, and and they are going to screw up, and even with the best of intentions, uh, you're going to get a result that is. Uh, uh, at, at best undemocratic uh, and, and could be much worse. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're, we're running kind of short on time, but I, I wanted to end on kind of a lighter note, at least what I think is a lighter note. Earlier in the week, uh, uh, and I think this is uh, about as light as it gets, that Bobby, Jin, Bobby Jindal entered the presidential race. Yeah. So that's uh, what I like to think of is Bobby Jindal threw his hat into the ring to be the uh, next multimillion dollar correspondent uh, commentator for Fox News. That could be. That, that could be. And, and I, 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 I like Jindal. I think he's fine. I don't think he's got any, uh, anything that that makes him stand out against the other folks in the field. Uh, it's, I guess, I suppose, exciting to have an uh, Indian American um, uh, candidate. Uh, but uh, yeah, you his, know, his I, he's are... not saying anything new. He's not. I don't think he's particularly dynamic. Um, he's got some baggage and, uh, you know, Louisiana doesn't bring anything particular to the equation, no, not hardly. uh, in, in terms of electoral, uh, electoral states. Um, in the, in the article that I, that I read about the announcement, I, I love this line. It said in a telephone survey, 0% of Republican primary voters said Mr. Jindal <laughs> was their top pick to be the nominee. <laughs> well, he's got nowhere to go, but up. 
What was the the margin for error yeah. on that, though? I mean, it's sort of funny. How how sad! How very sad! But uh, oh well, I wish him well in his uh, uh, in his quixotic quest for the presidency. I suppose. Or yes, or he could end up, you know, the cabinet, you know, secretary, undersecretary of of something or other. Yeah, and, you I know. think that's a little more. I don't even think he's uh, likely to get a, a VP nod from anyone. No, I don't. I don't because, like I said, I don't think he adds anything uh, electorally or philosophically that you can't no, get elsewhere. Not hardly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's about it for us for this week's episode. Thanks. Oh, that was a good show. Yeah. We, could have, we could have kept talking for quite a while. Oh, ab- absolutely. We, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a a lot of fun stuff, at least for us, certainly. So hopefully for the listeners, too. But if you are still listening, thank you very much for listening. And if you have any thoughts, comments or criticisms, we would love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we really would appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review there. You can follow us throughout the week on Twitter. Our handle is politicsguys. We'll be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.